I'm Aaron. I'm Scott. You're listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. This is one of our special edition week of indie podcasts. Our guest today is Bruno Junquera. Yeah, and what a great interview, right? Uh, great racer, uh, driven guy, competitive. Uh, you know, guy had a, a really great career, and he and he shares some things with us. Um, so it, it was a good interview. I, I really enjoyed talking to Bruno. Um, good guy, man. Yeah, and um, obviously, I mean, he won he won eight races in Champ Car, so great Champ Car career. He finished runner-up in the championship, I think, three years in a row. Um, he got to drive for, you know, some of the biggest teams in racing. He drove for, um, obviously, Chip Ganassi Racing, Newman Haas Racing. Talks a little bit about, you know, Paul Newman, what that was like. Um, and then, you know, later in Indy, he was a victim of some of the, you know, business moves in Indy that c- kind of happens that p- some people may not realize of, you know, you know, having to be replaced by other drivers, um, you know, due to sponsorships and, you know, different things like that. Yeah. And it was, it was really good to seem not bitter at that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely mad. Not. Uh, you know, he actually was very complimentary to the people and, yeah. um, and then, you know, he's still racing. I, you know, I wasn't. I knew he'd run sports cars. I didn't know he was still running sports cars. Of course, COVID stopped that because of the, where the owners live. Right. Uh, they can't get into the States, but uh, he sells real estate now. So if anybody needs to buy real estate in Florida, look him up. Yep. And uh, no, it was a great interview, uh, really personable guy. And you can just tell he's, uh, you can just kind of see that, that fire, especially when he talks about racing. You can just kind of see it when he talks. Yep, and before film recording this, me and Scott were talking that he, you know, he's somebody that he could jump in a in a race car now, and he, I mean, he'd be very competitive still. I mean, you can tell he's yeah. still in great shape, and he still, you know, he still has that fire. And he, he was talking about he still wants to race Le Mans. Yeah, and, and I sure hope he gets that opportunity. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm sure he will. I um, mean, yeah. he's he's got great talent. Oh, um, so I'm sure he'll end up running Le Mans. Just uh, don't know when. But uh, hopefully for him, it'll be soon. It'll be many times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So without any further ado, we'll jump right into the Bruno Chincare interview. Our guest today won eight races in Champ Car. He started in six Indy 500s and won the pole for the 2002 Indy 500. We are joined by Bruno Chincare. Hey, Bruno, how are you doing? I'm good. And you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much um, for being a part of this. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Always good to talk about racing. <laughs> yeah, I bet. All right, so um, obviously you you had a very um, a very long successful career. Um, obviously, you know you went into Champ Car and Indy Cars. Um, talk a little bit about um, when and how did you first get interested in racing? I always loved racing. Um, I'm from Brazil. When I was seven years old, I started racing bicycles BMX in Brazil. So I always liked the competition. And when I turned ten years old, my dad bought me a go kart. And I started racing go-karts and never stopped since then. <laughs> awesome. So when you first started racing, like what, what was your initial goal? Like what type, like what was your dream with racing? My dream was always to race in Formula One. That's like Formula One was very popular in Brazil when I started racing. When I was uh, around 15, IndyCar started to be very popular because we had Emerson Fittipaldi doing very well. He won the 500, the championship, and many other races. So IndyCar started to be very popular as well. But I went to Europe with my goal to race in Formula 1. I won the Formula 3000 championship. That's a series just before Formula 1. That's the same as Indy Lights. And I won. I was the Williams uh, test driver for a couple of years that when Williams William was a very good team, I almost ended up racing and ended up not getting a seat. So I came to US to race for Ship Ganass Racing and it was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm, I'm here in US for the last 20 years. <laughs> What's it like uh, when you first get a chance to, uh, you know, you start racing karts and what was it like when you first got that first taste of victory? I mean, what was it something you just really took to immediately? Is it something that, you know, that it, the success came a little later? I mean, for sure, the su- success came very late in my career. When I was around 20, that I started to win big series. You know, when I was winning small go-kart races in my city, it wasn't 
a success, but I always love speed. I love competition. You know, uh, even if I'm winning a local race, uh, for me it was big. Uh, I, I like I like the competition to beat the guy next door, the the other drivers. So for me, it doesn't matter what I'm racing. I like to comp- compete. Oh, I I definitely consider success at your local track mm. a success. I mean, you can't help who shows up to race against you, right? I mean, yes. You, I mean, you're beating the guys who are showing up, and I, I consider that that as successful. I mean, that's where you're at, so you're as successful as you can be at that moment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I just remember that Ariton Senate documentary. There was a part in there where they asked Ariton um, what he enjoyed racing the most, and he mentioned. Um, just some random guy that he used to race at um, at a go-kart track. He said that was the most fun he ever had racing. And I think a lot of people w- would assume like, oh, you know, it's like for you, Bruno, racing the Indy 500 or, um, you know, racing in kart. But, you know, I think the answer is probably su- would surprise a lot of people. Yeah, it was. I, I remember the story when I was growing up in go-karts. I remember he had like a big rival mm-hmm. racing go-karts. Uh, but for me, it was, I mean, not the same. I had like... What's happening is a lot of my go-kart drivers, like Tony Canaan and Elio Castro Neves, that I race against them, uh, I end up racing and Cristiano Damato as well. So uh, I end up racing them against against them in the cars. And so it was actually good because in go-karts, I was younger, not I was maybe behind them a little bit, but then in the cars, we had like a good shot. I beat them, they beat me, it was like, more like a equal uh, playing field. Right. So the, when you... Uh, oh, go ahead there. Sorry. No, I was going to say, so when you moved into um, Formula 3000, who were some... So was it a lot of like the same rivals from karting that kind of moved into Formula 3000 with you? So was it like Canaan and guys like that? No, because Canaan and Elio and, and Cristiano, they try uh, Formula 1. They went to the European... Mm-hmm. Uh, path and they some reason the things didn't work as well and they came to us much earlier than me i went there and and i stay until uh uh i mean i was test driving formula one like when i racing formula 3000 my big competition was the f3 champions of every country i was the south american formula 3 champion and i raced against italian the french the english champion or some Asian countries. Uh, my biggest competition that year was a French driver that was actually British champion, Nicolas Minassian, and then uh, Mark Weber and Fernando Alonso. Those were the top three guys in the championship. The year before was Montoya and Nick Heidfeld that ended up racing Formula One. So I was like, uh, the good thing about the Formula 3000 that they call Formula Two now, they get the best drivers from all over the world that race Formula 3 or similar categories and put everybody on the same car. And it's mano a mano, you know, it's like <laughs> race against each other on the same car, same engine, same tires on the Formula 1 tracks Sunday morning. So I, I love that series because of that. When you, um, when you became a test driver, do you feel like as you're going into it, do you feel like, man, this is the road that's going to get me that ride? Or do you kind of know going into it, like, hey, this is, I may get the ride, and I may not? Um, maybe kind of what's that feeling uh, when you, then they give you that call and you're their test driver? Uh, well, for me, it was like a, a, a strange thing that happened because I became a test driver and Zanardi was one of the drivers and then when they fired Zanardi I thought I would maybe get it right and they test me against Jason Button and finally Jason Button ended up getting the ride so it was like an odd situation uh, but I felt good I mean I was happy that I had the chance to drive a Formula 1 car for many many times and, and at the time at one of the top teams you know uh, right. so I was very very close but didn't happen but I think I came to US and I had a great career. I drove for very good teams. Absolutely. Won yeah. races, won pole positions, fight for the championship. So it was fun as well. So as a Formula 1 test driver, how many days do you spend in the car? 
I, that year I spent 32 days on the car because I, at that time in 2000, uh, you could test a lot. Nowadays it's very different, but I help to test the car, develop the car in the year and towards, towards half of the year, I help to uh, develop the engine for the 2001 year. So really when you're a Formula One test driver, and I, I don't really know how the Formula One test driver stuff works now. I don't know if they're in the car as much, um, but so ma mainly you probably just do like a lot of promo and PR stuff for the team, right? And yeah, then some of, uh, like half of the time I was doing, pre not one third of the time I was doing PR, maybe another little, less than a third I was doing straight line testing and half of the time I was actually testing the car on circuits. Uh, at the time, I used to have 16 races and uh, it was allowed to do a lot of testing. Now, the testing are very limited because they have 21, uh, 21 races in the calendar. Right. Who were the, so who were the main drivers um, those years with Williams? I think Zanardi was one, right? Yeah, Zanardi was a driver in 99 and Ralph Schumacher. And then in 2000 was Jason Button and Ralph Schumacher. Oh. So you, you're doing the test driving, and then you said uh, uh, Justin gets a job. Uh, at that point, were you thinking to yourself, man, this isn't going to work out? You know, I want to be in the car. I want to be on there in race day. Um, at what point, how do you make the decision, hey, this isn't working out. I, I'm going to go to the States. Uh, I was t doing the test driving 2000 and racing Formula 3000. So I won the championship. I, uh, uh, Williams had two drivers signed for 2001, so I had no chance to drive for them. I start to look smaller teams, and after you drive a really good car, you're <laughs> not as keen as to go to smaller teams, but they still right. look. And then you win the championship. So I was on the top of the world. I said, do you know what? I think Ganassi was a top IndyCar team. I think it was a better and safer choice for me. And you know, like Fernando Alonso that finished fourth in the championship, he went to a smaller Formula One team and end up going up to through the teams. You know, I didn't I didn't want to take the risk to go to a really small team and then race one year in Formula One and had no chance. You know, because you never know in Formula One. Sometimes you get a small team that that year the car is good, you can do well, and if that the year that you go there the car is not good, you can be the best driver in the world. That there is not much you can do. Right. Yeah. And, and I have to agree. I mean, if I'm sitting there the same as you, that's a big bet to say, boy, I'm going to take a chance here, but I can go here and I know that this is a proven winning team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that'd be tough. Yeah. I can, I can see what you're talking about. So you get to the States, you start driving for chip and uh, you guys had success pretty quick, right? I mean, I came to the States and I think at that time, IndyCar was very, very strong. Uh, oh, yeah. I would say that even looking at the budgets and everything, uh, Ganassi or other IndyCar teams, they had bigger budgets than the small Formula One team. And IndyCar at that time was very strong. With four engine manufacturers, we had Honda, Toyota, uh, Mercedes and Ford. We had two chassis. So it was a strong series. So it made a lot of sense to come here. I came to Ganassi, uh, I was on the pole in Nazareth in my third ever race. My fourth race for Ganassi was the 500. Um, I was the fastest rookie and uh, ended up finished fifth. And then I won a, a, a race later in the year. So I think it was a decent year, not as much as people expected because they thought, uh, because Montoya had a great success in the first year. But uh, I think that year, uh, the car, they had the Toyota Lola, so it was a new package for them. It wasn't as good as the Honda Hena that they were already dialed in. So we improved the car, and in 2002, the following year, I won many races and finished second in the championship. So I was like, I had one year to learn as well, to learn uh, the tracks, learn the culture, the regulation of how to race in the US as well. Uh, so 2001. So was 2001 your first time ever on an oval? Yes, it was. For and it's incredible. My first time ever in an oval, I was on the pole in Nazareth <laughs> and I finished seventh. So I, I had the speed. I didn't have the knowledge to race. So that's why 
Although I was the fastest driver on, on that weekend, I ended up finished seventh. Right. Um, so, so racing Indy, I've always heard people say that Indy is more like a, like more like a road course than actually an oval. Would you say I that's kind of true? Really? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> it's 50-50. It's still an oval. Right. Uh, but it's, I think it's four corners and there is not much right. banking. You right. have to time it perfect. You know, it's very different than racing like in Texas or, or Fontana or some, some like high banking or medium banking tracks. You know, it's, it's very different. I love it. I love the 500. When you uh, when when you're over in Europe and, and running and you see the guys running the ovals, as a driver who's driving very technical, you're driving a very technical race car. You drive very technical race tracks, and you see the ovals. What is your impression of the ovals before you get to run one? <laughs> I was watching IndyCars cars because I'm number one. I'm a big race fan. <clears throat> At that time, IndyCar car was very popular. Uh, Aerosport to show all their races live. Uh, so it was a really good thing to do on Sunday night because it was the end of the day in England uh, where I used to live. So I had a lot of fun watching and I really want to try because I love fast corners and ovals about going fast, you know, uh, really high speed on the corners. So I always had that wheel. And what I really love about IndyCars uh, that we have all the three disciplines. We have ovals, we have street courses, and we have road courses. So somebody to do well in this series, uh, the driver and the team, they need to be really good in all the three disciplines. And what is nice that some guys are really good ovals, oval drivers, or they have a good oval cars. They show up there, they win the pole, they win the race, and when they go to the road course or, or street course, they don't do as well. And some others are the opposite. So this blend and this mixture that makes, in my opinion, IndyCar is very exciting. So we never know who's going to win. There is no prediction. Like in Formula 1, you have like two right. or three guys with chance to win. IndyCars, I think this year we had like four races, four, four or five, four yeah. or five different winners. So that's that mixture is very nice and it makes it very challenging for the drivers and the team to succeed in the series. To do well, you need to be good on the out all the three disciplines yeah i agree i mean it's it's hard it's it's uh and like you said like people i think some people look at a, a natural road course and then they look at a street course and think they're similar and they're not they're completely different oh yes i, I mean you're driving in a tunnel a lot you know on a street course it's you know you got the walls and it, you know it's just a total different thing um what, uh, you know, when you ran, so you ran the first track, was there any of these tracks? And I know some people say, well, Indy can be kind of intimidating, but man, I would think Texas, especially at that <laughs> time, I would think Texas would be pretty intimidating the first few times. Yeah. In my first IndyCar race uh, in 2001, in my first year, you were going to race in Texas. It was going to be the first time Champ Cars was going to race in Texas. Okay. okay. And a couple of drivers passed out and crashed in, in practicing. So they canceled the race. I don't oh, that was your remember. first. So that was your rookie year. I didn't realize that. That was my rookie year. Is that the year they were talking about on, on rapid response where something with the G forces was affecting people? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. So what yeah. was your first time running Texas in? 2001. Uh, then, I mean, the race, the racer. Uh, 2008, because I stay in Champ Cars and we never right. come back to Texas. So in 2008, when they merge, I race in Texas. You uh, and you had a, uh, you know, what I would consider a lot of great success, um, especially when you stay in Champ Car and you were in Champ Car. And I think you won eight races, seven races, yes. eight races eight. in Champ yeah. Car. And, uh, you know, kind of take us through, like, when you come to that point, I think you ran second to points, what, three times? Yes. And you were leading the points when you, uh, unfortunately, got hurt at Indy. Yes. Um, what's, uh, what's that feeling like where all of a sudden now you've come to the States and you've established yourself, and now you're kind of, you're running up there, and you're, you know, your uh, performance is meeting your expectations. 
I mean, I came to to US. I'm I'm being always driven to do well. Right. And I had the first year that was difficult. The second year was great. Uh, I finished second in the championship, won a few races, pole positions. I was fighting on the top three, top five. And then on the following year, my goal was to win the championship and I finished second. So I say I lost the championship. So it was really hard for me to swallow. And then the following year again, three times in a row and three times with a different winner of the championship. So it was kind of difficult for me. Uh, I was very competitive, but then uh, I put a lot of effort for 2005. I think I, I was in great shape, but unfortunately, leading the championship, I had an accident. I broke my back and I stayed a year out. But I learned uh, uh, some things that really teach me a lot in my life. Uh, I think the accident teach me a lot because life is not about winning. You have to work very hard to win. But it's not just about it, you know. Sometimes you cannot get everything that you want. You know, I was very driven and sometimes I got very frustrated when I didn't win. So I learned uh, to be a better person after my accident. Uh, but on another hand, you know, when I was young, teenager, racing through the ranks, I needed to have that winning attitude because I never had a wealthy family that could pay me to race. I always needed to win to get sponsorships to get right for the following year. So I think it's a balance. I learn with the time and age and everything to balance both. I think that's a huge misconception for um, a lot of people in America. They see the drivers from other countries come over. And I think in their minds, um, they don't see an American driver getting a shot. They don't always take into account how hard you guys have worked over there to get your sponsors uh, to race in whatever series you're running. Uh, And that's something I I try to tell people. I was like, everybody thinks these guys come over and they're just wealthy and, you know, dripping with cash. And that's just not it. You know, there's a lot of different ways to put money packages together and get sponsors. And, and I think I wouldn't say that you work harder at it. I think you, I think the guys, a lot of the drivers from other countries are, they figure out how to get here, right? They figure out how to put the deal together to get here. And I think that's something that sometimes um, that is lost on some people. They just don't quite understand how hard it really is. Yeah, I think uh, the Brazilians had a great tradition on, on the 90s and 2000s to have great drivers in both Formula One and IndyCar. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest secret that to have, uh, for sure, have really strong go-karting and that makes good drivers, <laughs> but is the will and the grit to succeed. When uh, when you are a teenager and you, and you leave your country, to live by yourself in Europe or in the United States, you want to work 100%, give you 100% to succeed. You don't want to go back to your country without succeeding. So this grit, this push 24-7, working hard to succeed, I think was the biggest secret, uh, for especially for me and some of my friends, fellow Brazilians, that succeed in Europe or in the U.S. Yeah, I said to one of, um, we've interviewed a couple of Brazilians on the show, and I, I said to one of them, I said, one thing it seems like about, especially Brazil, um, if you if you can win in other countries and represent Brazil well, I mean those you you're treated. I mean people really get behind you. Yeah, and I and um, that I always think that's very impressive. Um, you know, because sometimes you know, like the United States can be a little indifferent at times when Americans are doing well doing things. Um, and I always think that's always very impressive when, um, you know, and I'm not just saying it's exclusive Brazil, but it, it's something I definitely see in the Brazilians, uh, just how much the country just gets behind you. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think all the small Latin American countries as well. Uh, I'm good. I'm, I've been in the U.S. for 20 years, so and I love and I, I'm American as, as well. My kids are born here. What's happened, 
American, there is a really good sports culture. So if you're a good athlete, you can get high school, you can get to university, you can get... So I think it's the number one country or sports country in the world for at least half of the sports. You know, when you go to Olympics, you get the most gold medals and everything. But that, on the racing side that you love it, makes it a little bit harder because, uh, you know, if you are the best American race car driver, okay, that's good, but you have another 50 sports that the United States is number one as well. And in the case of Brazil, usually you always had a really good soccer team, a really good race car driver, and one or two other sports that were good. You know, sailing, Brazil always being good in, good in sailing. Now the jiu-jitsu MMA, and that's it, you know. At some point there was a really good tennis player, but it was just one. And you know that is a is always just one one of a kind that those got good in one sport and then disappear. But like the sports that Brazil have tradition is being number one soccer, number two racing, maybe number three sailing. You know, and that's it. So that's the what people gets behind is the soccer and racing. No, that makes sense. I, I hadn't really thought of it like that. Because in the States, we like you said, there's just an abundance, right? There's right. there's just so much of so many things that uh, mm -hmm. the people are just kind of spread out to what they like or their allegiance. Yes. Uh, every once in a while, you'll find an athlete, uh, say like Michael Jordan or LeBron James or somebody that – or Kobe Bryant that, you know, large amounts of people gravitate to. But yeah. so often it's, you know, you have some fans here, some fans there, and – and uh, no, that makes sense. I, I, I understand that now. So, um, so talk a little bit about, so what was your first year at Indy like? Um, obviously, you know, you say you always watched the 500 um, and I'm sure you had, you know, some kind of vision of what it would be like. Did it kind of meet your expectations? Um, obviously, you, you were very successful your first year at Indy finishing fifth. Um, and I'm guessing you would have got rookie of the year, but that 2001 was when um, Elio, yeah, so yes. he obviously got that. But what, um, so what, what was it like your your first year in Indy? It was an incredible experience. Uh, I did a, a test with Ganassi. Me and my teammate, Nicola Minassian, we were both rookies. We didn't have much over experience, but I think I did well. But Ganassi then decided that he was going to hire Tony Stewart and Jimmy Vassar to race because they, they were more experienced, <clears throat> was safer, a safer bet. So they went on qualified day, they qualified the car, and I was going back home, I used to live in Indianapolis, and then Mike Hall called me, hey Bruno, come back here to the track, Ganassi wants you to go and qualify tomorrow on bump day. So I remember I was like arriving home, I you turn, go back, do a seat <laughs> feet, and then next day you, I jump on the car, and I always had this uh, really good relationship with Indy. Like I, I get up to speed very fast, and I did a few laps in the morning, and I went to qualify, and I qualified the fastest on the on the that day, faster than Mike Andretti and faster than a lot of other good drivers, and actually faster than. Jimmy Vassa and Tony Stewart, and I was the fastest rookie, faster than Elio and everybody. I was, I think, I was qualified to be good, to be P5 in, in right. fifth place. And but then I started like 26 or something like that, or 23rd. So on the start was one of one of the most incredible things in my career. I was between Michael Andretti and I was a junior. I was in the middle. <laughs> in, in Indianapolis. When the car is good, you can take it flat all way around, or maybe you lift, you never break. And I remember I came to turn one on the start without that vibration and everything. I had to break and downshift. It was like a very incredible experience, especially the first two or three laps with all the cars in front. Because even if you practice, you practice one or two cars in front, not with 26, 26 <laughs> cars in front. And slowly I start to go to the field and and I think it was on one of my greatest race. I had no experience and ended up finished fifth. I actually, I was running fourth. 
behind Michael. Michael finished third and my M plate fell off and then Jimmy ended up passing me like for a few laps and I finished fifth. So it was for me it was a great experience. I was like up there, like right. next to Jimmy Vasse, Tony Stewart, Michael Andretti, like big idols for me, like racing against those guys. And Elio, that was my race friend since we were like 10 and 11 years old racing cars, <laughs> ended up winning the race. Uh, the, the only thing that was not fair that he won Hook of the Year, I know that was his first year, but he's been racing the cars and ovals for many years. Right. I was actually the real rookie Yeah. on my second ever oval race in my life. I raced Nazar on the weekend before, and then in G- I didn't <laughs> know what to do, but uh, whatever. Elio won the race in the Hook of the Year, but uh, I had a great experience and great memories. What was that like? We talked to we've talked to a couple of drivers that started in the back, and, and they were talking about their experience, like with all the like you said, you 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 just drafted behind a couple of cars, and it's not that big a deal. Now you got all these cars in front of you. Now you got all the fumes, all you know, from the fuel and everything, and, and you got guys kind of trying to find a way to fit in. I mean, is it, it, it? You're so focused. I'm sure not at the time, but looking back, is it pretty uh, pretty hair raising? You know, pretty. Pretty nervous time. Oh yes, I remember by that time it was the most amazing thing I ever did in my life. You know, I remember I spoke with my dad. Wow, that start or that first two laps, I couldn't believe how much the car would shake, how much the both thing and everything from the draft of the cars. Like it was completely. <laughs> I always imagined the race before I go. How how be the la- the laps? How be the pit stop? All, all those things that go through my my head. But that I could never imagine. So it was like a <laughs> unique experience. <laughs> that uh, and you never had to start. Did you ever have to start that far back again? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> there was a year that it was the same. That they they I, I didn't have a ride and I was they call me bump day and I qualify the fastest of bump day and I don't remember the position but well, like 2000 I think it was was it 2010 with fast yeah 2010 with fast yes qualified 20 something was the same so well, obviously at least, you've, at least you've, you had the at least you had the memory from before so yeah <laughs> you didn't have to it wasn't a big surprise then right? no no it was much easier 10 years later I had a big ex- in this experience it was easy right um, so obviously you've started near the back of the pack, and then obviously in 2002 you got the pull. What 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 do you really think is the the big difference in the approach when you're starting farther in the back versus starting in the front? Much easier starting in the front. Right. And then I started four or I mean starting the pole was great. Uh, I had a lot of confidence. I had a really good car, and I led the race until the engine started to have a problem, and then my engine blow blow out. I think I had a car to win the race. Um, was a shame of the engine thing. But the only issue that I had is like the year before, uh, the guy that's, I think Scott Goodyear, he crashed, he started on the pole and crashed in turn one. So all the reporters, bro, you're not going to do like Scott Goodyear. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I need to be very careful in turn one, you know, because, but then, okay, then when you go there, you just go and drive. And it was perfect. I did turn one and led the race right. until and until the engine started having problems, and then a few laps later blew up. Or it could have been like 1992 and spinning before the race even started. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I mean, you always have to pay attention, but right, right. Yeah, that, that that would look too bad. <laughs> Ganassi would scream too much, so I'll make sure <laughs> I had. I had a good warm-up lap and good turn one in the first, first few laps. You mentioned Mike Hall and, you know, Mike. I don't know Mike. Mike's been around forever, but uh, Mike seems like a really cool guy. How, how cool is Mike to deal with? Oh, he's incredible. He's calm, and but very, very knowledgeable about racing. He's one of the best people in racing that I ever work with, for sure. And, I mean, I think, I, I think Ganassi is a winner. But in a part of being a winner is to have a solid guy like Mike Hall behind him. That 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 guy, Mike Hall, is incredible. He 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 does a really good work for the team. Yeah, Mike. I mean, uh, I you know, Mike gets on social media every once in a while and 
share some little insides and that and, and but you know, he's been around for so long and he just he's just one of the great guys behind the scenes of the sport yes and people think that when a driver win the race whatever it's not just a driver there's a big team behind you know and i think the team is very important and uh the consistency that he has of the team is incredible you know i mean every year ganassi is always up there uh, on the last 20 years i mean watch or 25 years even before me they always been very consistent yeah and then you know of course you were a teammate with dixon for a brief yes, period right? yes when yeah. i finished second the championship and they've had such a long and, and great relationship yes um and i i have to believe that mike's been such a steadying person there that you know it probably really helps that because it you can't be somewhere that long and not have some bumps in the road yeah 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 but i think they're gonna still have a few years left Jackson is incredible he's really good in all the three disciplines that's why he's he's winning so much when you watch a scott dixon would you like what i told aaron one day we were just talking about how the same thing how good he is and I, what i told aaron is i said the thing about scott dixon is scott dixon will know he's on his decline years before somebody like myself would know it like you know he's that good right i mean he he, you know, he he knows when, uh, where he's fallen off a little here. If he's fallen off, what he has to work on, that sort of thing. When you watch somebody like Scott Dixon, what do you? I, I mean, I guess this is maybe too general a question, but what do you, what do you see? I mean, is it just that drive and that his his driven uh, to success and perfection, or I mean, kind of what do you see when you see somebody at his level? <laughs> I think. He's he has so much experience and so much confidence on him. That's somewhat so much belief and no pressure because everything combined make him a very very winnable driver. You know, uh, I think when you win, you start to have more confidence and then you can win. He has nothing to prove, so everything falls on his side. You know, that makes it much easier. Yeah, no, that, that makes absolute sense. And and he's good in, in ovals, road courses, and street courses, and saving fuel, and everything else. Well, like some, we had another guest on here, and, and we were talking, and we were talking about Dixon a little bit, and, and he said the thing about Scott is, is that you would think somewhere like Texas, where you're a little older driver, you're not gonna, you know, maybe extend yourself quite at Texas, and like he said, he's you know, he's the oldest driver with the biggest balls, you know, and he's not going to back off or anything. Um, I, the difference is, like, you're going to extend yourself on the last 20 laps. Right. Sometimes the younger drivers extend themselves on the first 20 laps and end up crashing. So right. he knows the time and when takes the gamble. So that's why he's very consistent. That's that that's in the, in the championship run. That's what makes difference. Sure. You know, sometimes you have a kids that very fast, maybe faster than him. Now more balls or whatever, take more risks. But throughout the championship is very difficult. That's why in the end of the championship, if you still look, there is always the experienced drivers. You know, we have some really fast drivers that can do two or three races good, and then one bad one. Scott and uh, uh, Joseph Newgarder, all those other guys as well consistency and then right. at the end of the year who are the top three in the championship always the same right i mean scott wasn't great at indy this past weekend run 10th right or ninth run ninth or 10th i forget which they weren't even you know they hadn't been in the hunt really all weekend but guess who's in the top 10 when it's all over you know and guess who's leading the championship right yep. absolutely when uh, you you mentioned um, that when you got hurt, unfortunately got hurt at Indy, you mentioned that it taught you a lot. In, in were you because, um, like you said, you had to sit out a year. Was it more a lot in just general life lessons, or was it that make you reflect maybe on your approach to the the sport? No itself? general life lessons. Yeah, 
my approach is still the same. <laughs> Maybe when I finished second, I was not mad. I was happy. <laughs> That's maybe right. it's different on the approach in the spots, no? Well, when it's over, it's over, right? I mean, yes. So when you have a, a bad accident like that, I mean, do you ever like second guess, like if you want to continue racing, or is it just something that is just in your blood and you, it just kind of gives you more desire to get back and and to start winning again? It wasn't in my blood. I never had a second thought. <laughs> the first thought after that, when are you going to be able to race again? Right. And then I came back to Indianapolis in 2008. Yes, 2008. And in the third lap, I was already flat all the way around. So, no, like, like nothing happened. You know, otherwise, if you start second-guessing, it's better to stop. Well, you look at uh, Hinchcliffe's crash where he was hurt and he come back the next year, he sat on pole. Or you look at Bourdais, that horrific crash he had come back and he's been fast at any you know since then yeah. uh you know i like you said i think you just have a way of com compartmentalizing that maybe learning from it and just moving on yes i think in the end of the day uh, some people the guy after the crash got slower maybe there is a point uh it's not because is i think it's not because of the crash uh in my case, sometimes is the is the grit, the will, or whatever the, that thing of never losing. Maybe in the end of the day, that gives gives an edge, you know. But when you see about consistency, maybe I could have got more consistent, not being as aggressive as I was before. So there is always a balance, and and unless you have like a really bad concussion or. or something like that, that some drivers could maybe make it lower. Uh, but I think in general, it's just learning through experience of the big crash or something like that. You, 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 you got, you get smarter, you know, and in the end of the day, if it's five laps, you need to take the risk. You take the risk the same way as before, you know, uh, I'm sure that me, Hinchcliffe or Bordet are not afraid of anything. It's not about afraid. It's just, be smarter as well right it seems like now there's a lot of guys well, well i'm thinking of like romain Groshan. um i think he originally was going to run the whole season and and since he had his bad accident um where he caught on fire he that kind of persuaded him against running indy so I, I think it's kind of interesting how you know it's different for some people and it seems like now when people get scared they just don't run indy and I know, like, Chilton was one originally that said he didn't want to run Indy anymore. But I think he's still running Indy this year. Yeah, I agree. I think some drivers that came from Europe, <coughs> or that maybe have, like, a, I'm not going to say bad things, but they are maybe wealthy already, or married, or, you know, with kids. And right. They... <laughs> They don't want to take the risk. Uh, that that's maybe the explanation because we had a lot of people getting hurt in the, in the last always, not let, right. last twenty years, but always had. You know, I mean, I don't know. That's maybe the only explanation I think. But uh, yeah, when you're young, you will go with go for it. You know, right, when right. You're married and kids, and we never did it. Some guys don't want to try to do it that's the only explanation you know i don't know i'm just thinking about it it's not you know saying bad things about somebody but maybe that's why well it is funny though that when they especially they ran the, the road course and then you hear you hear grosjean say well you know i might test on an oval and then you hear jimmy johnson man you know i might test on an oval and you know as the wheels are turning hey i might want to run indy next year you know <laughs> So I think that the lure of that place can can get to you a little bit. You know, it can it can change your plans. Yeah, I, I wish Jimmy Johnson would run the 500. He'd love it, and I think he'd do much better. Mm -hmm. uh, he'll adapt much quicker in the engine than on the road courses, street courses. It'll be much better for him. I think with all his knowledge, how much smart he is, and his racecraft, I think he'll do very well in the 500. And he's one of those. Time. 
I'll, I'll, I'll love to see him there. <laughs> I no, think he'll be. Like, I think he'll be there next year. Um, right. That's a guess. I mean, obviously, I don't know anything, but I feel like next year, you know, and that arrow screen has changed a lot too. That's yeah. that's uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you ran in the open. I mean, open open cockpit. You didn't even have the little windscreen like they did like in the seventies. You yeah. know, um, so, and I think now that they've seen how well they work, you know, yeah. cause there's been two, three incidences where that were pretty touch and go, um, where the windscreen has definitely shown that it, it can withstand a heavy crash. Yeah. I, I think that can help change minds too. I agree. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> I think, I think when people look at what happened to Justin Wilson, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, that that's hard not to overlook, you know? Yes. Yeah. I think the cars, uh, seven, eight years ago, uh, they had too many pieces on the car as well. Didn't help. Now the cars are more like one less small wings on the car mm-hmm. with their screen. Uh, so for sure the cars are much, much safer now than it was. A few, a few years ago. I think IndyCar did a good job. My opinion, the only thing that I was tell, you can make safer cars, safer tracks, so the drivers are always going to push more than limit. So, <laughs> tech, I know I know that is the series, uh, they need to do it, makes a really safe track, of soft walls, safe car, whatever, the driver is going to push more than limit and uh, you know, it's never going to be completely safe. I'm not saying that's the driver's fault. That's what we have to do, you know. But uh, it is what it is. You know, it's racing. Uh, that if, racing must be always a little bit of risk. That's the adrenaline. That's what uh, makes us different from a regular person on everyday driving the cars on the street, you know. Uh, you need to have a little bit of danger on the thing as well. Well, you got to believe in yourself. I mean, yes. that, there's just no two ways about that. You, I mean, you absolutely have to believe in yourself and what you're doing and your ability. Yes. The so, um, oh, Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. Um, no, I, actually, no. Go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to say, uh, you mentioned now, this is a man uh, that I was always, I think a lot of people are intrigued by. What was it like to be around Paul Newman? <laughs> great. Paul Newman is a great person. Uh, but the most important, he is a, he was racing passionate. One of the persons that love racing mostly that I know in my life in a very, very good driver. <laughs> At his age, I saw him running faster than a lot of young kids. And <clears throat> he was very fast, very passionate of racing. In a great personality. I, lo- I love him and Carl Haas. I had such a pleasure uh, and a bless to be able to drive for them. Yeah, that's a little unfair not to mention Carl Haas because he, he too, was a, uh, was a pretty interesting character. Yes. Uh, you know, I, again, <laughs> you know, this is a man I've only seen on TV. But, man, he, he always seemed like um, – I mean, I guess he and Paul – shared the same passion, right? They just loved racing. I mean, that's just was all they cared about, really, in in a way. Exactly. Unbelievable. Uh, their lives was racing, especially Cal, the team, racing, uh, and his wife, Bernie. That's pretty much everything that he cares about. Uh, and Paul, uh, I think he cares about the charity, that he's mm-hmm. an unbelievable Oh, the work that he had done. I think for sure the person in the world that did more charity in the world by far, you can say Bill Gates, all the guys donated more money, but for sure for the wealth that Ponyma had and the amount of money that he donated is more than everybody. So the percentage, you know? Right. So that that Ponyma did a great job and they love racing. That's, that's, that's what their lives was all about yeah i um i know a couple of the older drivers and um and that like they 
you know, like they say, you know, Paul was a racer. And that's a big, you know, that's a pretty high compliment considering who the people are. Uh, and that it's pretty amazing, really, that, you know, he had this career in acting and he just came into racing and, and loved it and had that passion and, you know, was able to hone his skills and um, truly make a life's career out of being a racer and a race car owner. Yes. Um, unbelievable. Really, really good actor. Uh, very good on the charity and on racing. So he had like three, three different lives. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So, um, so obviously racing business is a, is a big part of it. And unfortunately, um, you were the victim of two different times at Indy 500 of, um, qualifying the car and then being replaced. And I think, so the first one was 2009. Did you actually qualify the car in 2009? Both years I qualified. 2009, <clears throat> uh, Conquest had two cars. <clears throat> one car, they qualify with the driver. And then on the bump day, they called me to try to qualify the second day, spare car. And I qualify as well for the fastest of the day. <laughs> I'm the king of the bump day. I qualify like four times the fastest. And then... <laughs> I ended up bumping the other car and Eric Bacchela, the team owner, was very nice to me and said, Bruno, you we have Tagliani that raised a full year. I need to have him on the car. And I understood, you know, in the end of the day, is a business. Eric gave me a chance to qualify. I had a lot of fun driving the car on the limit with not many practicing laps. And I showed that I could do it very well. But uh, yes, uh, that's easy to understand. Was it next year with Foyt? Was it the second time with Foyt? 2011. In 2011, I came, or 2010, I came with Fast and I qualified in Bump Day as well, the same kind of potent up racing. And the year, the following year with AJ Foyt, but then I was not on Bump Day. I practiced like four or five days and I qualified on the on the pole day, I qualified the car. And then I think the Andretti cars, three of the Andretti cars didn't qualify. And Ryan Runtray had the brand new uh, DHL sponsor that they, he still have until now for like 10 years. And <laughs> incredible. And then they end up buying uh, my seat from AJ Foyt. And I understood, you know, I mean, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's fine. I, I had fun. I, I drove well and <laughs> put on the grid. You're uh, speaking of characters. You got this. Did you spend a lot of time talking to Foyt? Sorry, I said speaking of characters. Did you spend a lot of time talking to AJ? Like when you uh, drove for him? A little bit. He's a, a big bit. character, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, it was fine. I think uh, I, I admire him. Great yeah. driver. Uh, there is nothing else I can say. I mean, the guy won everything. Everything. Yeah, he's uh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Definitely one of a kind, that's for sure. Yes. And it's funny because a lot of people, when you think of Foy, you think like, you know, that, you know, he's he's mean and he's kind of rough with the drivers. But we interviewed um, Marco Greco, for example, and he was saying, no, AJ, like, you know, everyone kind of said that he was, you know, kind of tough to deal with. But, you know, AJ was great with me. Like, he was super nice, you know, always helped me however he could. Um, did you kind of have a similar experience with AJ? I mean, I had like four or five days on his car. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Even less, maybe three, because rain, I remember, I drove like three days or something like that. He was fine. And uh, Larry Foyt should take, run the team. <laughs> I think he still does. <laughs> He's a super nice, super gentleman. And even when he called me about, uh, you know, selling the seat or whatever, I mean, both of them treat me very well and it was great. I had no, I mean, I never ended up racing, you know, I was just practicing and qualify and I just put the car on the show in a decent position. Uh, so I think it was good. I, I, I no complaints. When, uh, when was the last time you raced uh, competitively? Are you still racing competitively today or? <clears throat> last time they raced, uh, actually 2019. I did a few Lamborghini Super Trofeo races. Actually, mm -hmm. I won my first 
<coughs> Super Trofeu, and then I did like a second and third, I did, I did three, three races <coughs> with a gentleman. And last year I was going to do it, 2020, and uh, my driver is from Canada, my gentleman driver, and because of COVID, he canceled uh, to race, and he still didn't race yet because still all the restrictions from Canadians, they, if they came here, they have to stay 14 days in quarantine, and he's still not racing yet. So uh, I've been, I raced sports car full time for seven years after IndyCars. In the last three or four years, I've been doing three, four races a year, or prototypes, or mm. or GTs, or Lamborghini Super Trofeo. So I've been always active, always winning races, but now it's a odd thing because it's been like almost two years I don't race. It never happened to me before. <laughs> Are you so when everything opens back up when your gentleman driver is able to race? Are you going to go back to racing or <laughs> that's the idea? Okay, I've right. been talking with both Canadians and this guy from Germany as well. That he thought he was coming to race what is Glens, and I think it's gonna, not going to happen. Uh, but um, let's see, maybe I do a few races in the end of the year. If not, I hope next year because I love it. Oh, that's great. I mean, that that's really great that you just, I mean, you're just somebody who just going to, you know, not take any seat, but take good seats if you think you can be competitive in the cars and you're still going to compete. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, when you, when you first went into sports cars, did you still think, man, I might be able to get back to any cars? Or once you got into sports cars, were you thinking, eh? This is probably where I'm going to be at. I think after AJ Indy 500, I never call any, any IndyCar teams anymore. I was racing sports car for Jaguar, I think, that year. Yes. And I was had in my career that I raced IndyCars around 35, and I think I was 34 at the time, and then started racing sports car. You know, I think I had a great career in IndyCar, and I think I did. And, you know, uh, everything that I wanted, I wish I would have won the championship, but um, didn't happen. But I won many races and, and many podiums and everything, so it was good. So, um, I guess life outside of racing, so so you're a realtor now, so how, how did you get into that? Uh, around 2009 and 10, <clears throat> when I had a crisis here in Miami, or the, or the subprime crisis, I bought a few uh, a foreclosure apartments and uh, I used my friend that was a realtor and I started to rent them and started doing well. By 2014, uh, the apartments were, I made a good money and I got a license for me to sell the apartment because I was working or renting and everything and I got a license for me, I sold the apartments. We saw the office building as well that I had of more partners. And then 2015, a friend would like to buy a house. I sold it. And then the other one, another apartment. And so oh, that's a good commission and good work. And I'm still racing uh, sports games a full time. But uh, it's something that I start to do on the side. And I, I always did for myself and for some friends. And I never thought, you know, like the COVID pandemic came and I stopped racing and real estate now became my full-time job, you know, and I'm doing very well. So, Well, you're definitely uh, in the right spot for it. If you're in Florida, that's a good place for it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And now all the, all the people from the north and uh, in California as well are coming through here. So a lot of activities. I've been working full-time this year. Incredible. <laughs> in, in one way, if I had to race, I don't know if I was going to be able to. So uh, that's funny how, how life go, goes, you know. I mean, and I still miss race a lot. I always talk to my driver from Canada, and he misses racing, I miss Bruno. But you're working so much, are you going to be able to race with me? I said, yes. I, I always have time to racing. I stopped real estate for like a weekend, for like three or four days. I... I can't do it. <laughs> so, um, kind of wrapping up here. So, when you look back at your career, is was there one win or you know one pull or one race that you're kind of you know most proud of? 
I think uh, there are two races, uh, three, three races. In any cars, uh, for sure, the two most special wins was uh, the win in Motegi in 2002 in Japan. I was driving for Toyota and never Japanese engineer had won the country. And the track was owned by Honda. So I won in a Honda track with a Toyota engine. I think that's very special. And it was my first overall win. Out of being on the pole many times, I was close, but actually to get an overall win, it was very nice. And then a second one is a race that I almost won many times, being on the pole many times. And uh, that Surface Paradise in 2004. Uh, I love that track. Every driver's favorite track and favorite race. So it was pretty cool. And then for sure, uh, in Formula 3000, when I won the Monaco Grand Prix, was very special. Have the Monaco race this weekend, and winning Monaco is very, very special as well. In pole position, the best pole for sure is the 500. At the time, the pole day was two weeks before the race. Usually, the pole position, you win the pole position and you can enjoy for 24 hours. In the 500, I could enjoy for two weeks. Then it was very cool. Yeah, winning in Monaco. What what was that like? It was very cool. In 2000, it was incredible. We had like dinner with the Prince of Monaco and everything. Like, was was very nice. Yeah, it looks amazing when you when you see it on TV. Just the atmosphere, and uh, I would say probably in it, you you've raced both. So, uh, in my opinion, the only race in the world I think that would even compare to India as far as tradition and prestige and and that sort of thing uh and you've i you can definitely speak to that because you've ran both you know yes i i mean i think it's very hard to compare i think indie is bigger crowd uh i think to watch live is there is nothing in the world that compares to watch indie 500 but on the other hand monk is more luxury more prestige whatever you know in the middle of the streets, that's a very expensive area, all those big buildings and casinos and restaurants, whatever, the noble boats, the no, I mean, it's, it's very unique. Uh, but yeah, I had great opportunity to, to race in both of them. And to be honest, I know that uh, every year gets a little bit harder, but I, I had a, a few almost opportunities. My goal is to raise the third most important or as important is the, the 24 hours of Le Mans. I hope I can oh boy. feel that yeah. that uh, dream in the future. Yeah, I hope you get to too. You know, I, yeah, another, that's a race you watch on TV and it just looks yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, and people still talk about, you know, obviously they made a movie about it just two, three years ago, you know, Ford yeah. and Ferrari and, all that so you know it, it just means a lot that, that's a big big race it is so we have a, a question that we ask um as we kind of wrap up our shows and i i ask um i always like to give the person we're speaking with a chance to uh speak about someone it could be somebody that's it could be a family member it could be somebody very well known. It could be somebody we've never heard of, but somebody that meant a lot to you in your career. Uh, somebody that, um, you know, that just really, I guess, is somebody you could kind of point to and say, man, that person there really, that really meant a lot. I think in my career, for sure, was my dad. <laughs> nah, you came together from a city that was not even a go kart track. Uh, he was mid-class, mid, mid didn't have much money. We, pay, we bought the first go-kart. It's not that they were poor, but we were able to start. But then uh, he helped me a lot through getting sponsorships and everything. So it was like a, a team work to, to get where I got, you know. So for sure, he's the person that helped me most in my career. Oh, that's great. I love hearing that. Sorry? I said that's great. I love hearing that. Yeah. Once again, Bruno, thank you so much. Really do appreciate it. Um, you know, like I was saying, we've um, you know we've interviewed a few other indie guys, and it's I tell you what, it's it's been 
a lot more fun than I thought it would be when we originally started. It's great to hear, you know, the stories, talk to different people, you know, really hear the personalities. Um, so once again, you know, we really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Scott. Um, yeah. It was a pleasure <laughs> to talk about racing, you know. I cannot go racing right now, but just to talk about it makes it exciting. So if I know anybody moving to Florida, I'm sending them right to you to get a house. Okay. That, uh, no, I, I tell you, it's been a pleasure for me to, to listen to your stories and talk to you. And uh, you've had a, an amazing career, uh, you know, some, you know, very special moments. And, and uh, we appreciate you sharing those with us. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Thanks Bruno. I appreciate it.